exciting, Jim. But not as we know it. This is big. It is 14 minutes past 8pm on Monday, the 10th of October, 2022, and you are listening to the Bashcast. Bashcast, Tom has had enough. They switched off the mainstream news. We've got a few more reports coming in our direction of some large horse racing wins. So we try and deconstruct them. Golf betting's hit a bit of a high variance period, but the almost wins are stacking up. An empirical analysis to estimate under disposition in the frequency of player braces and hat tricks. Jack 4 off versus 7 8 suited. The poker world is rocked by a cheating scandal. All of that and more coming up in the Bashcast this evening. semi-recorded some of it last week and then I wanted to talk about an analysis but the analysis just went on and I wanted to take my time with it that was the player xg stuff that's coming up and um, probability distributions for two plus and three plus goals uh, I was just taking my time so I wanted to get it right it did mean that there's a part of this that I recorded which is about a poker hand that went down in the hustler live casino and I recorded that like 48 hours after it happened and it's and it's like I, I went through about half an hour of my thought process for it and then just left it hoping that I would upload the Bashcast soon after. And I've been sitting on it for a week and so much has happened in that week that the segment isn't actually that applicable anymore. I don't know when I come to it. I'll have to have to have some caveats of, look, this is perhaps some old information and it's not exactly up to date. But um, we are now, it's seemingly just drifting from crisis to crisis to crisis. And I have now made a uh, promise to myself of a few different life changes that I, I set objectives and goals for them um, at the beginning of September. I like to do this every few months. At the beginning of the summer, I set myself a goal of no TV for the kids over the summer holidays. And we managed zero minutes of that generally by keeping busy and being outside and I was happy with that result um, I've set myself a target of one live music gig per month I wanted to 
lose a bit of weight, which is going to be easy because I also wanted to drink a little bit less alcohol. So those two things will tie into each other. Um, we're heading to Prague next month to the Forum Carlin to see a big band. Oh, well, it's going to be Bonobo. What me and my wife and my mate do is we buy tickets for each other, but don't tell each other what it is that we're getting tickets for. So um, I'm hoping James doesn't listen to this. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Um, what was the other ones? I wanted to do something big for my sister's wedding, but most of all, I want to stop reading the bloody news because I, I'm starting to notice that the news is getting us into a cycle of crises and fear in a way that... Did you notice this when the pound crashed against the US dollar? And um, there were so many headlines about it being at an all-time low. And then it recovered, but there were no real headlines, or at least not at the same scale, about the recovery. And this is because we must be kept on the edge of our toes, on the edge of anxiety, in order to be fed the news, because the people feeding us the news need us to be devourers of their information. Otherwise... How do they make money? And so we lurch from one crisis to another crisis. And I'm not going to say that the cost of living isn't impactful, but what are you going to do about it? And I'm not going to say that rising petrol prices wasn't impactful, but don't you see them coming down? And I'm not going to say that food getting more expensive and in interest rates and inflation and all of that isn't important. But what are you going to do about that? We elect relatively clever people to take on the responsibility of worrying about that on our behalf. In a past life, I was an economic consultant to the government, and I kind of have a little bit of perspective of how much they know and how much they're flying by the seat of their pants. And Liz Truss has done a U-turn on some very major issues, which she probably hadn't done full cost-benefit analysis for because she didn't have the time to do it. But also you're painting an incomplete picture and trying to make decisions when you don't have all of the information in front of you. And in all honesty, making U-turns in those scenarios is the correct thing to do. When I was down in Westminster, we were trying to advise on optimal infrastructure spend. And infrastructure spend generally runs into billions Infrastructure spend is necessary for two different reasons. First of all, spending on infrastructure actually is beneficial to, to growth, to GDP of any country, right? So you will tend to find that countries that do not spend on infrastructure, they're not thinking long-term enough, they don't attract tourism, they don't um, make it easy for people to get around. And making it easy for people to get around has benefits in terms of job growth, uh, in terms of spending the community. It's just generally a good thing to spend on infrastructure and make it easier to get around and also safer. In terms of safer, it's a weird thing that uh, in infrastructure planning, they literally do put a cost on a human life. I love it when I hear people say, oh, you can't put a cost on a human life. Yeah, you can. And in a lot of um, highways, maintenance, safety planning, it's around about £21,000. That would freak a lot of people out. But generally what they'll say is if you can implement a plan for, you know, £100,000 and guarantee that it's going to save, on average, five lives over a certain amount of time, you're probably going to get the investment for it. Um, uh, 
a lot of people would like to think that a life was worth a million pounds, but that doesn't work in the realm of economic expenditure. And so it's a very good thing in terms of growth of economy, and it's a very good thing in terms of safety in terms of people's lives. But it's also so easy to tweak the numbers because when you're predicting very long term in the future with very large engineering projects, such as the M25 that I was working on, you would we, what we would do is we would measure every single few centimeters of the M25 with a laser on every lane. I mean, the M25 goes up to seven lanes uh, out by the Dartford Crossing. On average, there's three and a half to four lanes plus a hard shoulder. They are constructed to different depths. The hard, the hard shoulders are completely different depth to the main carriageways, of course. Some of it is made out of concrete, and you've got these concrete bays that need to be maintained that can take a completely different kind of load and have a different life cycle to the uh, asphalt, which will be of different depths around the carriageway, all built in different years, all with different skidding um textures you know as you, if you're down a slip road coming to a roundabout you'll see that the surface changes because you need people who apply their brakes late to be able to safely come to a stop without skidding that skidding that high texture skidding surface will be a lot different the friction resistant in that to the main carriageway and all of these deteriorate at different rates we'd measure it all and we put down different life cycle investment plans in front of the government and say something along the lines of, you know, if you invest 100 million this year, then you're going to save 200 million over a 10 year span. But if you spend 300 million this year, then you're going to save 400 million over an eight year span. And so it comes down to how much do you want to save by spending more now? And when belt buckles are being tightened, there's a lot of pressure on ministers to stop spending money immediately, even if in a 10-year plan, spending money immediately is going to be more beneficial. And you tend to find in times of um, coronaviruses, furloughs, in times of huge energy prices, when debt has to be accumulated by the government, that it's very difficult for ministers to make decisions. And... What I learned was that two people could put down exactly the same plan to the government and one would be rejected, one would be accepted by the pitch with which it was put towards them. The people making decisions and the people influencing the decisions are doing so with incomplete information. But I do know that they are the most educated and trained in their discipline and so because of the most educated and trained in their discipline, now that I have left this arena, I have trust that all the way up to the higher echelons of government, they're doing their best. They probably could be doing better, but they're not doing too badly. And I forgive them if they have to make U-turns. In fact, I'd be worried if they didn't. What I don't forgive is the changing narrative I see in the news in the headlines which is trying to keep us invested in crises after crises because i see a serious impacting on people's mental health my mom's and other people's they always have to be worried about the current crises the next crises what's going on my best piece of advice that i could have to anyone and it is something that i've put in my series of self-development objectives between now and the end of the year is turn the bloody news the fear news the crises to crisis fear news off not necessarily all news 
I'm very invested with what happens over in Ukraine and interested in that. Fuck off, Vladimir Putin. Don't you just follow John Sweeney for the fuck off Vladimir Putin. Just fuck off campaign. It's really good. And something that tied back into the M25 infrastructure days that I found quite notable with the Ukraine stuff recently. That bridge is at the Kerch Bridge in Crimea. And the Ukrainians bombed and destroyed that. It was a link between Crimea and Russia, a major infrastructure link between the two areas. I was reminded of when I walked into the reception in the M25 offices over a decade ago. And um, there was a new... There was a new KPR. There was a new sign on the wall, like a digital sign, and it was um, the terror threat level. And not only was that we we didn't have the terror threat level on the wall before this day, and not only was this a new sign, but I was walking in to find out that the terror threat level was at its highest for the network of the M25, specifically some some clever clogs in MI5 or MI6 or somewhere, or whoever comes up with the terror, terror threat levels, had identified the Queen Elizabeth, the QE2 bridge, as a high-risk landmark for terrorists or a terror threat to attack. And this was news to us. And I went upstairs, and the QE2 bridge has a assigned to it as most large bridges and pieces of infrastructure in the country, a uh, senior structural engineer who will know every column and every load that goes through that particular bridge. Uh, Tony was his name. He was, a, he was a drummer in a band as well. And I remember Tony commenting that you could give him £100 million and a week and he doesn't think that he would be able to bring down the QE2 bridge. So good luck, to the terrorists and off the basis of just that bit of feedback from Tony good work and congratulations to the Ukrainians for bringing down the Kerch Bridge in Crimea um, that's not as easy as it appears and it doesn't appear easy <laughs> thought I might talk about golf this week because um, I feel like I haven't for a while. Um, there was a couple of bits of feedback both about racing actually. Someone um, and the thing about racing and golf is golf, I prefer golf over racing but golf really does need that mentality that you know they, the mathematics that underpin the model for golf and racing and look at the probability of finishing in exactly second up to nth place it's the same methodology for both horse racing and golf. The only difference is timescales and variance. You know, you could have eight races, uh, eight meetings, 64 races a day. You could have one or two golf tournaments a week. And you can only have one winner. So, you know, in 32 weeks, you're sometimes getting the same amount of volume on golf as you're getting in one day in horse racing. And when that winner is John Rahm at five to two, there's not much you can do about it. We'll come back to the Open de España. But someone shared a uh, lucky 15 with me. It was a 12 to 1, it won. An 11 to 1, it won. A 9 to 1, it won. 
uh, and a 16 to 1, uh, which happened to be, I like this, it was temporarily the last race, which meant that we already had the three winners. If it places, it returns, well, I don't know the stake on this, but um, uh, a one pound um, stake, one pound lucky 15, would have been 2,335 pounds for the place, 36,369 pounds for the um for the win and I generally stake three pounds on a lucky 15 90 pound stake altogether so that would have broken the hundred thousand barrier had I been on it which I wasn't incidentally but the horse did place at the in the, in the last race um but still not a bad return 2335 from a single pound um there was that one. There was a second bit of feedback, which I th thought was relative here from someone who has been doing really well on the racing. They say, um, I fear I may be one of the people you describe as having one arrow as I'm exclusive to racing. I tried golf and I personally believe you need the patience of a saint on that front. And I can understand that. And I'm going to have a look at the kind of patience that you need. And then to finish it off, we had a blog from Rowan who said um you 150% bank growth from one bet you read that correctly so rowan does this diary over smart betting club where he monitors different if you like tipsters or services in horse racing and in golf he monitors four in horse racing bet alchemist who has a 0.28% ROI northern monkey minus 13% ROI the value better, 14% ROI, and bookie bashing, 130% ROI. So he says, um, this happened last week. A lucky 15 winning bet, four horses, three winners, and a loser. 25 to 1, 14 to 1, 17 to 2. I thought I'd write down some very random thoughts about all of this. One, bloody hell, get in, you absolute stonker. You see, the thing is about the lucky 15s on the horse racing is they can they can be fun, especially if the fourth horse is running last as well. Uh, number two, I discovered a part of me I don't like too much. You see, the 25 to 1 winner actually won at 40s and the 17 to 2 winner at 10s. If only I had bog, I thought. Well, greed is one of the deadly sins. And if you've seen seven, you'll understand I'm not too keen to commit too many of those too often am i a horrible person for thinking this way even if it was only for a moment i don't think so but there's always that thing about you know people showing their accumulators and then there was a 95th minute penalty that killed the accumulator but they forget about the winner that won in the 95th minute it's it's always the way where you kind of the grass is always greener or could have, would have, should have. Look, if I had a cowboy hat, I would be a cowboy. Um, number three, bookie bashing is ace. To be completely honest, I knew this already. And genuinely, sincerely, I don't think that because of the results I've enjoyed from the racing tracker. Seriously, this tracker is only a small part of what they offer. Four, continuing the bookie bashing theme. If there was ever a case of putting more in to get more out, this is it. Sure, you can scratch at the surface and do well, but... 
just a little bit of thought and a little bit of effort goes a long way. I'm seeing this away from the racing tracker, which brings me on to five. At some point, I'm inevitably going to be shut down by the bookmakers. I'm trying to make the racing tracker a staple part of a much more well-balanced bookie bashing diet. I'm at the early stages, but my aim is to create something sustainable, and this means exploit exploring other angles, edges, and strategies. No doubt in the fullness of time, I'll be reporting back on those in these posts. And Again, that's important because a lot of people just hit the horses, but there is a problem with that, and that is restrictions. Um, Just hitting horses will see you get restricted over and over again. If you can get through that, fair play to you. But it's something that I think benefits from having more than one bow to the arrow and that being you know football coupons in shops are really good and easy to be able to get down um edges on the exchange where we're using the game center and the bet builder coupon tool and this is where we can't actually spoon feed the where the actual value sits because when it's an exchange edge it takes one person to come along and swallow all of the liquidity. We, we've talked about this on golf quite a lot. We could, po- I could point to where there is value on the exchanges right now in golf. But if I did that at scale with the number of people that are looking in the same direction, I mean, I used to sometimes post these things on Discord, not just golf, double delight, hat trick, heaven, things like that. People screenshot exactly what I say, share it around. Loads of people hit it at the same time. The bookmaker cuts the odds, and on the exchange, the liquidity gets just destroyed. So let's say I say that a golfer at 500 to 1 is value. It'll be three minutes before that 500 to 1 golfer is 200 to 1, and he's no longer value. So it's it's one where we cannot point in that direction, which is why we provide tools for people that want to learn. Not everybody wants to learn, but for those that do, those tools are there for assisting that learning. So um, definitely, I mean, look, I'm I'm not going to stop anyone that just wants to do horses. I'm just going to say I fear for the longevity of that strategy. And number six, my ROI for the racing tracker is now stupid and unsustainable. Well, let's come to that. Put it this way. I'm not suddenly going to increase my stakes fivefold or anything daft like that. I do intend to get to that point, but slowly, slowly does it. I appreciate that. I have been blessed by the gods of randomness and variance, but they can be a fickle pair and I'm not going to do anything to upset them, not deliberately anyway. So we talked about the ROI of the four services, uh, the boogie bashing tracker staked 430 points plus 561 pounds profits or points profit, hence the ROI of 130.52. Return on capital, 561.25, that compares to 3.65%, 0.58, and minus 65.72. The high is now, the drawdown is uh, zero. The max drawdown is minus 13.388 points when, you know, at a high of 561. That's a really small drawdown. So racing totals there. Um, for all four portfolios, ROI 52.78, ROC 160.09, although mostly due to the bookie bashing um, uh, racing tracker there. What was it that I was looking at? I was looking at something in terms of um, staking. It's just Duncan is trying to talk to me in the background. He's got absolutely no respect for the fact that I'm recording. Let's put that on mute. Um, 
Yeah, someone was asking about staking on Lucky 15s and on horses. So one thing I did look at is um, there's been a, a very much a large upswing in the horse racing results um, towards October. Interestingly, right, if you bet on every horse at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. at the top, at the primary six bookies, William Hill, Sky, Bet365, Ladbrokes, Bet Fred and Paddy Power, you'd be in profit by £140,000. That's to win £200 in every horse, right? I don't know how logistically possible that would be, but that's the net profit. Interestingly, though, the worst losing period, the worst drawdown, was at the 15th of July, 2022. So if you were in the middle of the summer, just before the summer holidays, and you were on a downswing, that was when the Bookie Bashing Tracker had lost the most that we've seen in the last few years in, you know, how many bets? 70-odd thousand bets or something like that. Um, and you'd have been £8,638 below your peak if betting to win £200 in singles. So what we can deduce from that is that if you had a bankroll of 50 times your win liability, so a 10k bankroll, betting to win 200 per horse, you'd never have gone broke betting over 70,000 horses on the tracker, right? So 50 times a win liability bankroll seems very reasonable. The previous max drawdown was on the 29th of March 2022, which was 7980 and the previous max drawdown before then was on the 30th of march 2021 7679 so it's like both times at the end of march this year and the year before was a maximum drawdown cheltenham's haven't been kind then and that's because of favorites i think just doing too well at cheltenham in terms of lucky 15s we always think that looking at our own records of lucky 15s 100 times the overall lucky 15 stake seems to be a reasonable bankroll so if you're going to bet one pound lucky 15s that's 30 pounds for an each way lucky 15 so 100 times 30 is three thousand pounds we would have a three thousand pound bankroll for one pound lucky 15s that's it but it does obviously depend on the ev you're betting at the higher ev the lower the variance and the higher the returns and it also depends on the odds you're betting at. Our guy likes to go into shop and put 66 to 1s on 100 to 1s, and there's just massive variance in that. If you're just sticking to below 20 to 1s, then you know 100 times the overall lucky 15 stake actually might be a bit too conservative. You might never be on a drawdown, a losing run that eats into that at all, in which case you're probably not staking optimally because you're not staking high enough. So, but I would say at maximum 100 times the overall lucky 15 stake, and it can be brought down if you start applying some filtering. Um, there was some feedback actually recently about how come we talk about some people getting 30%, 40% ROI when we say 5% ROI on the site. And I want to stipulate again, the 5% ROI on the site is the absolute bare worst case that anyone should be achieving and that is no concessions like bog no filtering of ev so you're taking 100.1 no filtering of odds do you know what i mean so it's like there's just no filtering process going in whatsoever and there's a five percent roi there but any filtering in and compound your bets with lucky 15s doubles trebles patents whatever then that return on investment the roi goes high um how high? Well, Rowan's at 130% ROI. I've seen over 200. 
And when people hit the big jackpot wins, of course, they're going to be absolutely enormous ROI, but those are outlier cases. Not everybody churned through enough um, lucky 15s and churns through enough horses in their betting lifespan to be able to hit the the lottery payday because essentially that's what the lucky 15s often are they're a, they're a plus ev lottery ticket where you know there are some absolutely enormous wins out there but even if you were hit putting down 20 or 30 lucky 15s per day every day you're not guaranteed to hit one of those because they're so unlikely the odds are so high of hitting them so uh, looking at golf the variance in golf is very interesting um this person again said required the patience of a saint and somebody else has said they'd given up for the uh, after they said a losing run this year i mean of course i don't know exactly what they're on i can only go off the options and the wgv figures now wgv figures here's the headline news and then we'll break this down i'm just gonna give you roi by year 2019 58% 2020 8% 2021, 25%, 2022, 33%. So you might think, oh, 33%, that sounds great. That is 74 tournaments and 12 winners. Here's the but. If you have a look at the graph for 2022, we got off to an absolute flyer up to the Raz Al-Kamar in the 13th of February, where we had, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six winners in like six weeks. And then since then, we have made about 500... Well, sorry, I I shouldn't talk in terms of individual stakes, so let me just work out exactly what the ROI is on that. Um, We've made 6% ROI since the 13th of February. So if you started on the 13th of February and you continued all the way until now in the middle of October, you've made 6% ROI. So all the winners came at the beginning. And I think if anyone saw the headline news of six winners in six weeks or something like that and then started betting, then it's been a little bit of a churn since then. So does that mean that the model's wrong or anything's going wrong. No, it means that this is how long it takes to get things done in in, in golf. We have to look in terms of years, and even a year with my model could be a losing year. Okay, this is the fourth consecutive year in profit. My model shows that about one in eight to one in nine, assuming <clears throat> roughly 80 tournaments per year, um, year could be negative, right? And we've had four consecutive years in profit. We'll probably finish off this year in profit. Um, so that's kind of the thing that I have to get. It's, it's difficult for me because I hate people getting upset about losing money. And I don't want to give anyone the wrong expectation. I don't want anyone to bet through January to December 2023 and lose money and then be upset as a result of that. But it could happen. And it could happen with a plus EV model like we've got. In fact, it's going to happen one year. Um, And it's the one thing that I find the least amount of enjoyment in is when, even with a winning model and 33% on the year, we, um, 
we we only make six percent from February till now, and I see people getting disheartened about it. I'd, I'd almost kind of prefer it if people didn't bet than had the expectation that they were always going to win. You know what I mean? It's like I don't need I don't need the the funds or the money from these people. So it's uh, so it's like I I almost sometimes I thought can I create a quiz before you're allowed to see the selections and the quiz is like do you understand that um, there's a big chat there's going to be long break even and losing runs in this do you understand you know what I mean but it's difficult to put those barriers for entry in front of people so it was an interesting one this weekend though and this is the fine margins that we have first of all. Um, when we were putting together the golf metrics graphs, I couldn't get any data for Tom King, but he was like 28 to 1 or something like that. So we had to like go and fish data out of the Asian tour and everything like that. Turns out he plots very, very highly. Patrick Cantley and Tom King are both at 24 under par going into the last hole, um, the 18th hole, the 72nd hole of the tournament at the Shriners. Patrick Cantley hasn't had a bogey all week and gets a triple bogey on the 18th. Tom King wins it by three shots. And um, I just want to actually pick up the graph here. I know we it took us a... The weird thing about these metrics graphs, so this is when we select different attributes that are relevant to each course, right? And we plot everybody in a multi-criteria analysis. I've spoken about it a million times before. Um, the hardest thing about this is actually getting the bleeding data, especially for people that come through the Corn Ferry Tour or the Asian Tour, because they're not um, they're not um, the the data just often isn't is a lot harder to source. Yeah, we scored Tom King as the like second highest score out of five in that tournament. We smashed that tournament, to tell you the truth, in terms of. You know, the metrics graph. The thing about the metrics graph is that all we're doing there is we're ranking every player relative to everybody else, um, trying to work out um, who's going to win the tournament. But it doesn't bring into account the odds, right? So we could think that Tom King's going to win the tournament, and he does win the tournament, but if the bookmaker's offering 1 to 10 on him, then he's not value, right? That's the first thing. Well, that's the major thing. So the graphs by themselves can't help us unless possibly we wanted to go and bet on the exchange. I have never done an empirical analysis of how well the uh, graphs are performing on the exchange. But check out the graph that we made for the um, Open de España. And I say we because I've created the model to make these graphs and then I've given it to BB team to actually go and make the graphs. And um, I really wanted it to be something that users could do, but we have difficulty on how we could actually source the data to give to users to play around with this. And it's, it, there's a little bit of legal mumbo jumbo that makes that, you know, not not straightforward. But um, the DPWT opened at Espanaya. Um, we had, or BB team had, I want to name BB team individually, but I don't have permission to do it, so I can't, so, sorry. It's just BB team put this graph together and we always highlight three orange meaning these are the three that really stand out relative to everybody else in the field and this was for driving distance scrambling and recent birdies and then a handful of other yellow players who are still pretty strong relative to everybody else in their price range Minwoo Lee 
His figures are just off the charts. He must be so poor in some attributes because he never does that well. <laughs> but um, he's always scoring highly on the multi-attribute chart that we have. So we had Min Woo Lee as orange, John Rahm as orange, and Nicholas Norgard Moller, who causes all kinds of synonym issues in the database as orange as well. So those are the three guys that we had as orange. Minwoo Lee, John Rahm, and Nicholas Norgard Moller. In yellow, we had Matthew Pavon, Louis Diego, Henny de Plessis, Wilco Nunabar, and Adrianos. Adrianos was actually my personal big bet of this tournament, and he finished in 120... I mean, he was almost last, 120th. Only He was plus eight. Only... What, one, two, three, four, five players had a higher score than him. So there you go. John Rahm won it. Now, there's nothing special in picking John, a five to two shot for winning. Okay, so I'm not. there's no bragging about John Rahm winning. We did have him as the big orange. Matthew Pavon, one of our yellow guys, in second. Minwoo Lee, and one of our orange guys, in third. Diego, one of our yellow guys, in sixth. Duplessis. In fact, we got first... Second, third, sixth, and eighth in that tournament on this graph. Um, uh, which was an interesting one, because just before the tournament, somebody new had come on to Discord and said, um, what, do I, what does everyone use the graph for? And one person did reply, um, the graphs are useless, I don't use them for anything, I just pick my players off the tracker. Now, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The tracker's picking up steamers, it's looking at the probability of, you know, first, seventh, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, ninth, tenth, eleventh. It's, um, it, it's a definitive plus EV rating. But I think some sort of filtering process where you combine the graph with the players in the tracker does nothing but enhance an already good model. So if you like, we're just refining our, our selections. We're going to have a positive ROI anyway, but hopefully we can use the graph to get an even better positive ROI. And that just takes me to the third tournament. We've talked about the Shriners. We've talked about the DPWT opened at Espana. I just want to talk about, and this kills me, right? This is, kill, this is, this is me forgetting about various. This kills me. The Live Bangkok right so how i send put my options up which i'm very very sort of protective of the um the the, the options and also weekly golf value where we get the options if you like independently proofed um i really want them to do well i know i can't outperform 30 40% long run Fine margins and high EV players at high odds tend to make all the difference in the results of these. So the Live Golf Bangkok, I downloaded the data at 12.42 on Wednesday afternoon, as I do every week. At 12.42, I normally take the guy that's at the top of the tracker and put him in, no matter what odds he is, unless he's the 1,000 to 1. I don't really put the 1,000 to 1 guys in. Fachara Kongwan Watmai um, was the number one EV player, PokerStars, 
150 to 1. He finished 27th. I did put him in 147.8% EV. So that's like max staking on him. Eight minutes later, something changed somewhere in the markets and Eugenio Lopez Chakara was now the top EV at Sport Nation and inverted commas 10bet. Not that we could have bet at 10bet. At 300 to 1. He won by three shots. He was 19 under and Patrick Reed was 16 under. This guy, youngest guy in the field. Who's ever heard of him? Eugene Lopez Chikara. 300 to 1. Five places, 1 to 5 at 10bet and Sport Nation. We can't include 10bet. We can include Sports Nation and Red Zone Sports. Six places, 1 to 5. 200 to 1 Sporting Bet. Five places, 1 to 4. 200 to 1. Ladbrokes, Coral. I would have staked four pounds on him under my model at 300 to 1. And I would have returned the largest um, return that I would have had um, for a golfer. And it would have sent the numbers for this year into the stratosphere. And it was the difference between me taking the data at 12.42 and taking the data 10 minutes later. You know, had I just been a little bit late that day, then he would have been in the options. He would have been in WGV at 300 to 1. But what can I say? If I had a cowboy hat, I would be a cowboy. a slow start for the coupons um this season um the for various reasons mostly logistical which are not that interesting but i won't go through them but um they finally started to take off a little bit this weekend coupons are that interesting thing again very sort of a lot of variance involved a lot of small losing months and then the occasional big winning month it's what we normally expect over a season so I'm hoping October's that, because so far running at plus 32% in October, thanks to a couple of decent win and two plus, um, a long list, that's a world long list at Betfred, and a pushes at Betfred. So one William Hill there, a long list, and a, a pushes. Um, that goes along with um, a break-even August, and minus 44% in September sounds bad but actually only placed eight coupon bets in uh, September um so need to ramp that up I'm having a sort of a slight um volume issue with them but uh, solutions are being in place if you're interested in what it is that usually we're betting on the last few that we've done a William Hill win and two plus pushes are just a long-standing one a match odds and both teams to score at Betfred uh, the seventh heaven, win both halves, half time, the quick slip, the Acker insurance. Even though we're not going in it, the value's we're not really going in it for the insurance. It's more there's just value on the actual coupon. Um, a few more win and both teams to score things like that. So um, let's just have a look at 
somebody did mention, however, on the forum, it's worth noting it when other people say it, especially, I think, a juicy seven out of seven here. So generally placing um, these steamers into trebles, right? So that means that we need a minimum of three, probably for a small loss, depending on the odds. Four should be about a break even. Again, if it's something of higher odds, like win both halves and three can be enough to be in profit. The seven out of seven is generally going to be juicy because you win all 35 out of 35 trebles there. Um, uh, some people say Mansfield 1-0 killed me on every bet. I do hate it when you've got like one team on every single slip and then like they just lose or they have a, like a, a last minute equaliser. But then for every time, like yesterday we had, um, there was an interesting one. I remember we were on West Ham and Crystal Palace and both were losing and both won. But we were also on the Salentina draw and Salatina scored in the 96th minute to lose that. And you, again, it's like it's just bias. You remember the times when the bet loses in the 96th minute a lot more than you remember the times when the bet wins in the 96th minute. You sort of put those behind you quite often, you know what I mean? What I found funny about these, we've been doing um, double runner testers. Um, so we get... Uh, one runner in one shop on one side of the country and they'll go in and place, you know, 50p or one pound test a bet on maybe the top 10 on the coupon. And that way we they'll send that to runner number two in another side of the country who can then sort of um, decide, well, have a look at what's been cut and then decide if they want to take the cut in their own time or if... Uh, um, uh, it's been slashed so much that it's no longer value. Um, so these testers, you can do them in a variety of different ways. The person that got the 7 of 7 on the forum did mention um, they did the 25p tester um, on an eightfold, and it returned £6,000. Now, I don't know about you, I am quite guilty um, of placing the occasional um, tester bet or having someone place the occasional tester bet and you just throw the slip into the bin because at odds of 24,000 to 1, you don't expect it to come in. And it did get me thinking, I do wonder how many winning tester bets have been thrown into the bin. Actually, I don't want to think about that, to tell you the truth. So... The coupons that are up just now on the site are still at the, just the three different bookmakers. We have William Hill, we have Betfred, and we have Independence. At the Independence, it's the midweek Golf Fest winning over 2.5, the midweek Quick Slip win, and both teams to score in the midweek Quick Slip. The match betting tournament, uh, the match betting, 1x2 odds. The good thing about the win in BTTS and the win in over 2.5 is either... There's generally no exchange market for the lower leagues, the secondary leagues, and so we can tend to find a little bit of value there because we calculate all of those ourselves. And so when they steam in, the bookies have to actually go to the effort of working them out themselves. And um, we can normally find the value before they can. At William Hill, it's the winning over three goals and, sorry, winning over 1.5 goals and winning over 2.5 goals. And win to nil are all on the match winner coupon, the score and win, the goal time, goal in minutes one to 30, game of two halves, 
that's to win both halves and team to score in both halves in half time. And I bet Fred its first half total goes. GG Extra, which is match odds of BTTS, Acker Insurance, Longlist, World Longlist, Pushers, and Seventh Heaven. Now, we're sort of in quite a good process of going and picking them up on Monday, and then most of these get OCR'd. Now, some of them have to be typed up still, but most get OCR'd and then imported into the system. We pick them up on Monday. There's no real new ones on a Tuesday except for the off-season. Pick them up on a Wednesday, and then on Thursday and Friday, they start coming in for the weekend. Um, I'm open to testing some more. Generally, when we've tested others, we don't tend to find anything. I went down to Coral Ladbrokes the other day. I picked up some two, some coupons. I typed them up manually into Excel. I imported them. I didn't find anything within 10%. I mean, it was all under 90% um, EV. Um, and when anything did steam in on those coupons you would go to the counter and they would be utterly utterly slashed and for that reason we've sort of been sticking on the same coupons but I'll, I'll put my hands in the air and say i'm totally willing to give things a shot i just want to formalize how we test them so i was just wondering like if you're listening to this and you're hitting the coupons and you want us to test a new one there's two options. One, you could load up all of the markets into, and gains into the Bet Builder coupon tool, monitor them yourself, copy them with a single click of a button into Excel. And you, if, you can, if you already had the back odds in Excel, you would immediately have that coupon monitored, albeit you need to be in front of a computer. So you'd need to be in a team to do that or live above a Ladbrokes for that to work. So that's the first way of doing it. Use the Bet Builder coupon tool. Any market you want, you can set up in there. Um, you know, whether it's on the exchange or whether it's not on the exchange, whether it's like leading at 27 minutes or something like that. But then maybe we should really give it a go of trialing every couple of weeks something new somewhere. So if you've got an inkling, and I do just want you to have an inkling that there's value there before you suggest them. I don't just want coupons thrown at me for the sake of it, because that's just work for the sake of work. There has to be some sort of reasoning behind it. But if you suspect that there is now value on a particular Paddy Power or Ladbrokes or Coral coupon that we're not looking at. And we have never found value in these shops before. But if you think that there are, tag us on Discord and ask us politely if we will upload it. And if we have time, we'll do it. Often, we run out of time because there's so much going on. In which case, just be patient and ask us again another day. Do you know what I mean? And I'll tell you, we'll tell you that as well. We'll just say, you know, thanks, but we don't have the resource available to do this because, you know, you literally have to sit up in front of Excel. One thing that would help is if you wanted to type it up in Excel for us, but if you can't do that, you just have to wait for when we have half an hour where there's not much going on. And um, we'll type it up into Excel, we'll import it, and we'll give it a go. And I'd rather not just give it a go once. If, they, if we're going to test something, we should test it on at least three separate occasions, because you can always put a coupon up and nothing comes in. And that happens. That happens even with good coupons, right? So testing something and seeing it, nothing came in once isn't really a test. Let us know, and we'll give it three rolls of the dice. And if there's no value after three rolls of the dice, then perhaps we might choose to pull the plug. And you never know. Perhaps we might uncover a coupon where there is value and we weren't aware of it. And if that is the case then we have the means and the ability to put that into our scheduling where we go and send someone and they pick up 
that coupon and import it into the coupons tracker every week. So if you're interested, pick the coupon up, tag us on Discord, tell us why you think there's value on there, I'd um, uh, and be patient if we can't do it on that particular day that you post it. Just try again the next time that coupon's out and hopefully we'll get around it to it and hopefully we'll give it a little bit of a test. Continuing the discussion of um, players scoring, anytime scorer, first goal scorer, to score two plus, to score three plus, to score seven plus, DDHH, all of that, the big edges that can be ha had in that. I've been continuing a lot of um, research and development work on this in the last week. Erling Haaland is actually helping shape it, um, especially more the multiple goals side of the model. So the way that I've set up the process for this tool to come out of alpha, an alpha tool is something that goes up in its first stages of production. It then moves to beta when it's a fully um, acceptable and performing model. And then it comes out of beta as just a, 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 like the horse racing track as something that's now ready running. So the player XG model will follow the same process it will go from an alpha which it's currently in just now and when we're happy with all of the calculations it then goes to beta as we just test and measure and benchmark and you know look at ROI and things like that and from there we go to the fully released version of the model um, now in terms of um, the alpha mode just now. The AGS price, we're very happy about the model that underpins the AGS price, which is what is measured from the market and then calculates player XG from that. There's one slight niggly bug. Uh, I'm hoping it's going to be um, fixed soon. What we do is we read the price at every bookmaker. Uh, we have a feed that goes out and looks at that itself. It's not from odds checker. It's a sort of direct looking around the place. And... Um, um, an issue is that some bookmakers, particularly Bet365, have quite strong defences in place and they will frequently block the scraper. I mean, it's not even like it's a blocked page. The page loads and there's just no data on it, which I think is their clever way of preventing information to be read by a bot because the bot actually thinks it's uh, the page is working and there's just no information there, whereas in fact there is a block in, pay in place, right? And what's happening sometimes is we get the top price for a player and then we apply appropriate mar margin and bias based on that top price. But the Bet365 prices appearing and then disappearing and then appearing and then disappearing. And when Bet365 are top price, as they often are because they've got their own trading team that are pricing these um, prices up, as opposed to the rest of the bookmakers that um, use an outsourced trading team. Um, so... You know, Bet365 often take a position. Sometimes they are higher than what we could consider to be fair odds, and there's just value all over the place at Bet365. But we want to know their price. And when it appears and disappears and appears and disappears, that means that we get large fluctuations in our XG price. We shouldn't. It's a problem with the scraper disappearing and appearing. We had an issue yesterday with Lewandowski, where Bet365 were the outlier price. And he was... Um, his odds for two plus goals were swinging from, I think four, three to one was available at the bookmaker. 
Um, when the Bet365 scraper was working, it was four with fair odds of 4.16 to get two goals or more. And when the Bet365 price disappeared because they were an outlier, he was four to back in 3.28. Now, that's kind of a little bit unacceptable as a user of a model to see because you're flip-flopping all over the place. You don't know what to trust and what not to trust. From my perspective, actually, the Bet365 price being an outlier means that we can probably dismiss it and the plus EV price is good. But um, that sort of takes some knowledge of the market composition, how much of an outlier Bet365 are. And it don't really want a tool where the user has to go in and drill into all of that information. Uh, that's a lot of work. So we need this Bet365 price appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing issue to be sorted and then when they are a serious outlier we do need to take into consideration when we want to sort of ignore them and when we want to use that information you know if they are higher than what would probably be considered a fair price then we want that ignored because we're saying that the bet 365 price is a good price um erling halland however is scoring some ridiculous number of goals just now uh, 20 goals in 13 games for manchester city um uh, 1.67 goals per game i mean an xg of 1.67 is higher than most teams most teams do not have an xg of 1.67 and eric harland is scoring at that rate um he, be he, he became the second city player after aguero in 2019 to score seven consecutive premier league appearances um and he's already equaled the tally of their top league scorer in the 21-22 title winning season, Kevin De Bruyne. And it's October. Uh, before this season, Mickey Quinn had the first goal, uh, the most goals in his first nine Premiership appearances with 11. The quickest player to reach 15 Premier League goals was Andy Cole, who needed 15 games to do so. Um, and Haaland has done it in... What's that? Nine Premier League games. It's it's just ridiculous how much he's scoring. The most goals in the first 10 Premier League games. Yeah, 15 in nine, Mickey Quinn. I mean, how are you meant to model this? This is a this is a black swan, right? It's very, very difficult to model and calculate his anytime goal scorer price. But what is interesting here is we're getting a lot of liquidity coming into two plus and three plus, and that's of interest to me. Because whilst I had sort of firmed up AGS and FGS, the 2 plus and the 3 plus was something I was going to come to when ready. The information that I'd had from a trading team was that 2 plus is priced up for bookmakers following a Poisson distribution. Uh, and 3 plus is a little bit uh, lower, meaning Poisson would be pessimistic for 3 plus um, because of something called dominance where when a player is um has got a goal and has got two goals he's more likely to get three goals now that doesn't mean that plus the Poisson distribution will fit two plus and three plus just because the bookmakers use it doesn't mean that they're purposefully using it and it's right or maybe they're using it and they're, it's uh, pessimistic meaning that they can profit from it or maybe they've just got it wrong and there is an area here to um do some maths look at some probability distributions and see if we can come up with something a little bit better than they're using, right? So what we can do is we can look at the exchange, especially when 
it's liquid with Haaland. The issue we had previously with the exchange with other players is that 2 plus and 3 plus are very recreational focused markets and they can have bias in them from boosts. And so it's very difficult to trust um, the numbers that are coming out of there, especially when there's not much liquidity. There is a lot of trading going on around Haaland with 2 plus and 3 plus, and so he can help us. The first game I looked at in earnest, well, I, I needed help to look at it. The annoying thing during midweek with my wife being away is that Champions League kicks off at kids' bedtime. But I asked them, um, the BB team, to log a load of numbers for me. And I had a look at Haaland versus FC Copenhagen. I think um, Man City were, what were they, 1.04 pre-match for this from Bet365. FC Copenhagen were 33 to 1. Unbelievable prices there, right? Now, um, in the two-plus market, at closing, about 10 minutes to 8, screenshot was taken, the graph was taken, um, there was £1,221 at 2.08, and there was £1,930 at 2.2. That's for Haaland to score two or more goals. So you can maybe infer with that amount of liquidity on both sides that his fair odds of getting two plus goals was between 2.08 and 2.2, right? Uh, 2.18 seemed to be the most traded number on the exchange. Um, uh, now, 2.18 for two plus goals using just a Poisson distribution, right? Which we're not saying that is the right distribution, but let's just run with this just now. The AGS would need to be 1.27. If the AGS was 1.27 and it was a, the Poisson distribution was correct, then 2 plus would be 2.18, which was about the most traded price, and it was in the middle of those big liquidity numbers. He didn't ever trade on the exchange as low as 1.27. He was 1.15, I think. This is off the top of my head. I don't have the numbers here, but I think at the bookmakers, the range of prices was 1.15 to uh, 1.25. Now, bear in mind, for er Erling Haaland just now, the bookmakers are going to be applying maximum margin and maximum bias to him because he's going to be a punter favourite. People aren't going to be backing him in singles at 1.17, 1.25, but they will be throwing him into multiples, into build your bets and things like that, right? So they're going to go low on him because he's going to be the, the favoured choice of the recreational player. So there's going to be a lot of margin in there. So could he have been 1.27 with that range? I feel like 1.27 is probably a little bit low for the fair odds of him. Having a look on the exchange, it, it was all over the place early doors, showing how difficult it is to price the, someone up like Erling Haaland. Uh, he started at about 1.32, 1.33. Interestingly, he bounced between 1.32, 1.33 and 1.5 five but i mean that's a big bounce that's nearly doubling in price in terms of probability right and it was um really wild fluctuations all the way until it settled down at about 1.34 never really going beneath 1.3 so could we say that 1.27 is fair if i never went under 1.32 so could we say that 1.27 is right I don't think so. There was £15,744 on that market, right? 
So it was really liquid, and it never went under 1.32. I think it's a stretch to suggest that 1.27 would be fair. So if 1.27 isn't fair, if he is higher, then the Poisson distribution to jump up to 2.18 and 2 plus just doesn't seem to be the correct probability distribution. Um, again, 3 plus using an AGS of 1.32 would have been um, a little bit higher than what was trading on the exchange. The problem with the hat trick is there were boosts around for the hat trick. So you could certainly argue that there was bias in that, but we didn't see one in the 2 plus market. So it was um, definitely food for thought. And my thought was that whilst we can see that the bookmakers are using a Poisson distribution from one to two, I don't think that that distribution is right. Not with Haaland. So what about other players? You see, we've got a sample size of one here. So I decided it was time to probably branch out into other players. I mean, Haaland is definitely an exception, I did plot top goal scorer by season in the Premier League from 2000 to 2022-23. Um, Haaland has caught Thierry Henry in the year, in the season 2000-2001. We're going to need a... And it's October. It's the beginning of October. That was the entire season for Thierry Henry. We're going to need a bigger axis for Haaland. At this rate, he's definitely smashing... You know, that the highest before this was 32, I think. And that's happened a couple of times. And that was um, Mo Salah in both occasions. So we're going to need a bigger axis. He's going to get to 35 and 40. So let's just forget about Haaland for now. And let's look at the... Well, how can we get a sample size for this? This is the difficult thing. Not that many players get a lot of braces. So how can we look at a lot of a larger data set. And so what what I decided to do was an empirical study. An empirical study is where you look at real historical data in a sample size that's large enough. So how do we get a sample size that's large enough to look at for braces and hat tricks and anytime goal scorers? What I decided to do was to get the top 40 all-time Premier League goal scorers and have a look at how many goals per game they got. How many, how many Premier League games did they have? How many goals did they get? And if you add up all the goals from the top Premier League goal scorers, you get 4,503 goals. So that's a decent sample size, 4,503 goals. And I could go out and I could work out, I could get the information for how many times the top 40 got braces, got hat-tricks. Now, for these players... We can work out um, a mean from them based on their average goals per game because we know how many goals they've scored. We know how many goal, uh, games they've played. And so the range really from the top 40 goal scorers was from Peter Crouch, who was about 0.23 goals per game, all the way up to Mohamed Salah, who's about 0.78 goals per game. We had players such as Ben Teke, James Beattie, Craig Bellamy, Eden Hazard, Emmanuel Adebayo, Ronaldo... Wayne Rooney, Alan Shearer. So I took all of these players and I had a mean. I had a mean expectancy for them. 
And then I used that mean expectancy to calculate how many um, braces they would get or estimate how many braces they would get based off their mean using a Poisson distribution. So, for example, I would take Wayne Rooney and I would see that he has 0.4297 goals per game. And so using a mean of 0.4927, I could estimate how many times he got zero goals per game, one plus, two plus, three plus, four plus, based on a Poisson distribution. Now, we did this for shots on target. We did it for Salah on shots on target. And we saw that with shots on target, the fit was almost exact, almost exact for Salah's shots on target um, where for his 275 shots on target on 180 EPL games. If you took his mean, the Poisson distribution just perfectly mapped how many times he got zero, you know, 22% of the time. What about if we're looking at, say, Wayne Rooney's um, goal scoring? Well, if you take his 0.4297 goals per game, Poisson would estimate that he would get zero goals, not point. 57% of the time he wouldn't score. Whereas, in fact, he didn't score 68% of the time. Uh, Poisson would estimate that he would get one goal 35% of the time, but he only got one goal 22% of the time. So what we're seeing here is something called under-disposition in statistics. What we're seeing is that Poisson is underestimating the number of times he gets two-plus or three-plus goals, so it estimated he would get... 34.2 braces, he actually got 41. It estimated that he would get 4.7 hat-tricks. He actually got seven. So it's overestimating the number of times he gets a single goal, and it's underestimating the number of times he gets multiple goals. This is under disposition of the Poisson probability distribution. So that's why we are seeing different numbers from AGS uh, to the 2-plus market, to the 3-plus market, four players on the exchange in a liquid market because there is under-disposition. So we are using a Poisson distribution to estimate 2-plus and 3-plus. What we know is we are pessimistic. The question is, how pessimistic are we? So I plotted all 40 players on a graph. On the um, y-axis, their goals per game, and on the x-axis the recorded braces relative to Poisson. So what we saw with Wayne Rooney is that he got 20% more braces than Poisson would have predicted. He got 41 and Poisson predicted 34.2. And I plotted them all, all the players. 75% of the players got more braces than Poisson would have predicted. 25% of the players got less. Notably, Mohamed Salah got the fewest relative to Poisson. Like, he's 30% under what what Poisson would predict. He's an outlier. Uh, but most players were over, by an average of about 15%, meaning that if you used a Poisson distribution, you could reduce that by about 15%, reduce the curve so that there are, the curve is showing... It's a little bit fatter and smaller if you're thinking of a bell curve. Um... Uh, it's a, and for hat-tricks, it's a little bit more pronounced, which you would expect. The dominance is a bigger factor. Uh, um, it's about, on average, 50% under disposition in this market. So we can use this now to adjust our probability distribution in the player XG model. 
Um, and we implemented this on Saturday, the 8th of October. And we were looking on the exchange at, now this time Erling Haaland versus um, Southampton. He was 1.47 anytime goal scoring. So assuming the exchange is an accurate prediction of his true probability. That's an XG of 1.14. And a Poisson distribution would have returned 3.15 for a brace. However, we're now not using a Poisson distribution. We're now using an adjusted distribution to account for the under disposition. And we get 2.77. Having a look on the exchange... The exchange traded between 2.6 and 2.8. Now, that's better. Now we're sitting in between the traded exchange prices as opposed to Poisson, which was 3.15. His 2 plus never touched 3.15. What about a hat trick? His hat trick closing line was 6.4 and traded between 6 and 7 mostly. Poisson would have said 9.2. I mean, miles outside of what was trading on the exchange. The adjusted probability distribution to count for under disposition had 6.44. So his last price match at kickoff was 6.4 and he traded between 6 and 7. So I'm a lot happier now with this new model. We've implemented the changes for... 2 plus and 3 plus. We use the 3 plus under disposition for 4 plus, 5 plus, 6 plus, and 7 plus. Look, I mean, when do we ever care about a player getting 4 plus or higher? And in terms of 8 plus, we're just never going to see that unless Australia play American Samoa again in FIFA World Cup qualification back in the 11th of April 2001. That was 31-0. I was reading about this American Samoa couldn't, who were a poor team anyway had to field a lot of 15-year-olds when they couldn't even get their under-21 team out to play Australia. Uh, Archie Thompson scored in the 12th, 23rd, 27th, 29th, 32nd, 37th, 42nd, 45th, 56th, 60th, 65th, 85th and 88th minutes. He got 13 goals. To be fair, when he got 11 after 65 minutes, I bet he was actually quite upset to have only got 13 goals at the end of it. <laughs> But um, that's not something that we need to worry about. I think I really just want to worry about 2 plus and 3 plus and, you know, 4 plus to 7 plus is there if we ever needed it. And 8 plus is simply going to be wrong. And I don't care that it's wrong because it's of no value. Black swanny as it is. But yeah, so we've implemented these changes. Now, what does this mean? It means that we've got a model now where we can start churning out some prices for 2 plus and 3 plus that can be used um, on the exchange, are they better than the um, exchange market ma makers? No. Are they worse? No. What they are is they're an alternative methodology. This is our methodology. Use the market to get AGS, stealing that information from the market, and then we've created our own adjusted probability distribution to account for under disposition based off the top 40 Premier League scorers from 1992. No one else is using that model. And it's a model that would have calculated Haaland's exact closing line prices for multiple goals on Saturday, even though we weren't calibrating it using Haaland. We were calibrating it using the top 40 goal scorers. So I'm fairly happy with this. This could be a good 
decision support tool. And remember, that's all it is. It's a decision support tool and it's autonomous. It's not definitely completely right and it's not definitely completely wrong. There will be times when it's better than what's available in the market and there will be times where the market is better than what is available in the player XG tool. So it supports our decision making is what it does. And it can definitely uncover some edges, certainly in some biased markets, certainly in some more empty, illiquid and inefficient markets on the exchange um, and at bookmakers. You know, especially in games where there is no exchange market for two plus and three plus, and we're able to price this up ourselves and go over to the bookmakers who will be cutting a lot less frequently. Um, and um, this is now, yeah, it's a, the, the numbers are calibrated in a fashion that um, uh, can be used to exploit. And so I'm happy that I've reached this stage. It also, by the way, feeds into the GDHH calculation. And because we are now um, estimating 2 plus and 3 plus to be a little bit more likely, which was always going to be the process I wanted to go through, start pessimistic so you don't uncover false values. Someone did mention, I hope people weren't, you know, value laying based on your numbers before. Well, if you were value laying 2 plus and 3 plus at 10.0, I mean, mug laying at 10.0, well, it was, it was never the case that an, a tool that sits in alpha and it is in the middle of a research and development project was meant to be used for laying tens of thousands of pounds at 10.0, 20.0. Do you know what I mean? Don't do that. But um, we can sort of move now in a direction where we think that all the numbers have a lot of confidence behind them in terms of a 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus, DDHH. We need to get this feed problem sorted for the input, but I, I, I'm confident. I mean, I've raised this as an urgent priority with the feed supplier, so I'm confident that that is something that's going to be sorted in the next few days, hopefully. And um, we can then look at moving this model into a beta and then finally, uh, after that, releasing it. I mean, releasing it, the bells and whistles I want to add to it is I want some sort of graphical interface where you can move around your players on the pitch. And by doing that, that does adjust the XG based on the knowledge that you have. But that's something I think is a little bit longer in the future. Right, so... This part, this last part of the Bashcast, this is a poker hand that I think everyone or a lot of people anyway may have seen. Now, here's the thing. When this happened, like 12 days ago, I jumped on the recording software and went through the hand. And what's about to come up is what I said 12 days ago. Here's the thing, right? A lot changes in 12 days. I actually thought I might have published this Bashcast 12 or 11 days ago, but I wanted to get my thoughts correct for the whole player XG modeling thing, and I didn't want to rush it, and so I'm a bit late in releasing this. And, I, well, now the hand is a bit old. Old in the sense that a lot more information has come to light. So I think I'm going to leave it in 
it's kind of a rudimentary walk through the hand that's now probably old news if you're familiar with it and been following all of the 2 plus 2 poker forum reports, the Joey Ingram podcasts and everything like that. So this is from the perspective of 12 days ago. I think you can probably hear, though, from my tone that at the time I thought she was guilty of sin on cheating. Um, I would say maybe back at that time, Probably about 60-70% of people thought it was an innocent um, recreational player making a bad move. And maybe 30-40% of people thought she was cheating. And I was firmly in the cheating camp. So I'll play what I recorded. And then at the end of what I recorded, I'll add in a little bit of a... I want to talk about this poker hand that's been going around that a lot of people will have seen and made even the mainstream news on the BBC with a suite of other cheating allegations in the world of fishing and chess. The chess stuff is just so fun as well. But this poker one, I think, is quite interesting. And I wanted to break this down from my perspective. I've played a bit of high stakes poker in the past, and I've employed a strategy of always sitting down and trying to identify who the professionals are and who the fish are. And I always made a bit of money with the strategy of forget about ABC poker, forget about Game Theory Optimal, really work out who we're going to avoid at the poker table. You know, let's not play hands against the Stephen Chidwicks. Let's play hands against the businessmen the guys that are splashing around and having a bit of fun, the recreational players, because, you know, that was <laughs> it worked for me. And in this hand, this was on um, a super high stakes table at the Hustler Casino. And it was between a professional, Garrett Adelstein, and a rep, well, someone that appears to be recreational, Robbie Jade Lou. And they were playing No Limit Hold'em cash games. Uh, Adelson had about a million dollars, maybe $800,000 in cash on the table. And Robbie Jade Lou had about $200,000 on the table. That wasn't her money. She was being staked in the tournament. How she was there, I'm not entirely sure. Um, her, she doesn't seem to have the same sort of pedigree and caliber as the Phil Ivies who were on the table, the Garrett Adelsons. Anyway, let's have a listen to this um, um, poker hand that was on Hustler live, and let's break it down and see if I can bring anything that hasn't been mentioned by a million and one other people so far. TV one of his first ones, yeah. That was like before he won all the tournaments. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. Wow, Robbie really mixing it up here. Calling Garrett's raise with Jack Four off. It's wine versus wine, and Garrett. So first things first. Let's have a look at what they're holding. Um, Garrett is out of position. Out of position in poker on the table means that you are first to act. It's always better to be in position, meaning that you are last to act or next to act because you have more information on the table there. So your strategy on a poker table should always change depending on whether you are first or middle or last to act. You can be a lot more aggressive and a lot wider ranges if you are last to act because um, you have more information. You know if the guy's going to go all in 
or not. So Garrett Adelson is out of position, the more difficult place to play from. Robbie is in position there, the two guys um, that are in this um, hand, or guy and girl. Garrett has a pretty standard pre-flop raising hand, eight of clubs, seven of clubs. So, you know, you like those running suited connectors because they can do a lot of damage if the flop hits. And Robbie has complete junk. She has the jack of clubs and four of hearts, a hand that I would pretty much never play um, unless I had a solid read on someone that I could exploit them on a flop where I thought they had missed it. And the flops come down, nine of clubs, ten of clubs, ten of hearts. So that's an interesting flop for Garrett. He now has an open-ended straight flush draw. He's got the seven of clubs, eight of clubs, nine of clubs, ten of clubs. He can hit any club for a flush. He can hit the six or the jack for a straight, and he can hit the jackpot with the six of clubs or the jack of clubs for a straight flush. Garrett here has flopped a straight flush draw, 10-10-9 with a couple clubs. He's going to bet 2,500. Wow, and Robbie's going to call here with jack four with the jack of clubs. Now, I'm not going to lie. That is an unorthodox call from Robbie. It really is. Um, the call with jack four on the flop on a 9-10-10 flop um, means she is uh, floating because she really can't hope that she's going to be ahead in this hand. So when you're floating, what you will do is you will maybe make some sort of assessment that your opponent's fairly weak, doesn't have a lot. And floating means that you can push the opponent off the hand despite the fact that you've got nothing and you're unlikely to improve. And look, she's got jack four, unsuited, on a 9-10-10 flop. There are very, very, very few hands that she's beating. So in her head, she's thinking, well, I've got nothing. But the other guy's got nothing. And so I'm going to float here because when he has nothing on the turn, maybe he'll bet I can raise him, I can push him off. Now, that's how a lot of pros might be thinking about this hand. That's the only reason I could see them in jack four. What about if a recreational player has jack four? Again, they're not hoping that they're going to improve or have the best point hand at this time. So they're maybe thinking, you know, they're maybe being stubborn. Going, you know, this pro's not going to push me around. I'm going to stick around in the hand and see what can happen. That's maybe giving a lot of credit to recreational players. What you find, actually, is a lot of recreational players will call without any strategy. You know, kind of, just kind of stubbornly thinking, well, I'm not going to be pushed around, but I don't really know what I'm going to do. So anyway, Garrett had a standard continuation bet on the flop. Amazingly, I wouldn't do it. But Robbie has called, so let's see what happens on the turn. Turn is a three, puts backdoor hearts down. And this is usually when Garrett will lay the hammer down with combo draws. She's got a one club and one heart, and wow, look at this. What is she thinking about here? Is she going to raise it? So the turn comes a uh, three of hearts. So didn't help Garrett at all. He still got that open-ended straight flush draw. Didn't help Robbie either. She's still got jack four off on a 10-10-9-3 board now. Um, Garrett 
put 10k into a 10k pot. Real cash, by the way, as well. And with a pound to the dollar rate, you might as well just go, it's 10,000 pounds he put down there. Um, so Robbie, now, this is where, this is the first of the strange moves, okay? There's 20k in this pot. Robbie has called probably without a plan, uh, but she's got nothing. She was never going to improve. She was never going to hit her jack. There's only three jacks in the deck for her to hit. She might have floated on the hope that there was a club coming because then she'd have three clubs and she's on a club flush draw hoping that Garrett doesn't have queen, king or ace of clubs for a higher flush draw. That's giving her a bit of credit and she was really looking for runner-runner clubs. She didn't get them. She got the three of hearts. So... I mean, the move, by the way, just to let everyone know, that there is only one move here that is profitable long-term from Robbie. Well, for starters, she should never have been in the hand. Given that she's here at this position, facing a pot-sized bet on the turn, the only move is for her to fold. However, I can see possibly that she called, floated the flop, thinking that she's going to somehow win this pot. And she min-raises Garrett. So the pot was 20k, and she put 10k down as a min-raise bet. Now, I don't mind that she's re-raised him trying to push him off the pot. She didn't re-raise him enough. There's so there's pretty much no combination of hands. There's no range of hand he can have where he's going to just um, um, fold to a min-raise. Because he now just has to put 10k in to win 40k. So he's getting 3 to 1 implied odds. His entire range of hands is going to have three to one implied odds on that flop. Um, I don't really know what she's thinking. Perhaps she's thinking, am I looking like I've got a full house or quad tens or something like that? You know, the flop is 10, 10, 9, 3. Whatever she's thinking, it's not going to work. So Garrett is looking down at a min raise on this turn. And he has to decide what he's going to do next. We saw her raise ace-king a little bit ago for a min-raise. Here she's going to min-click. I think he's considering bet three betting. And, yep. There's the all-in. There's the all-in. Garrett, like I said, he's just so experienced in bet patterns, bet sizing. She's going to put a time chip out? So a pretty re decent read there from Garrett. He didn't put her on the quads. He didn't put her on the full house. Um, he's put her on some sort of drawing hand, or he's read correctly that she doesn't have any strength in this hand. So um, into a 40k pot, he has just put Robbie all in. Now, she's only got uh, 121k back, so he's got like 800,000, but it doesn't matter how much he's got. It's, it, it, when you go all in, it only really matters how much your opponent's got. So he's put $121,000 into the pot. The pot is now $161,000. The pot's $161,000 real $1,000. Uh, Robbie is sitting there with jack high, no draw, no nothing, um, and she has to call 121000 to win 280000 of which obviously half is her money, right? So um, there is only one play here if you are a pro, and that is to fold your hand. You've got nothing. 
Um, you don't beat any hands. You've got jack high. There's only really one play here if you are a average player, and that's default. There is only one, one play here if you're a recreational player, and that's default. What are you beating, right? So from Robbie's perspective, she's got jack high. Uh, Garrett has showed strength. So what's he got? Has he got a flush draw? What kind of flush draw has he got? Has he got the ace two of clubs, the ace three of clubs, the ace four of clubs? Remember the flop is ten of hearts, ten of clubs, nine of clubs, three of hearts. You know, there's two hearts and two clubs out there. Maybe he has um, um, the ace four of hearts, the ace five of hearts, the ace jack of hearts, the ace... I mean, any, any ace and she's in bad shape because she's got jack high. Any king... You know, king-queen, king-jack for the straight draw. She's in bad shape because she's got jack high. Any queen, queen-jack, queen-ace, queen-eight. She's in bad shape because she's got... She's got freaking jack high is what she's got. Okay? Even if his straight draws um, are underneath the 10-9, 7-8 and things like that, she's got to be hoping that any of his draws don't hit the six and the jack and don't have clubs in their hands, otherwise she's under a 50% favourite. Um, there is no scenario when anyone, whether they are a pro, whether they're an average player, or whether they're a poor player, can now continue with this shove from Garrett because there's no equity left in this hand. There, I cannot think of any range of hands that Garrett is holding that jack for off might be reasonable. And yet she's used something of value. The time chip that she has, where she has to, to the ability to think for a little bit longer in her decision, has tangible value. And the fact that she's put it down is an incredibly strange thing for her to do. Let's continue. This is why you shouldn't be hand, in hands like this. She doesn't have a three. She calls? She called him. She called $121,000 into a $161,000 pot with Jack High against a range of hands where almost always Garrett is going to have some sort of ace, king, or queen in his hand. Um, it, that, it is quite frankly astounding for once but it's up to you Yikes. oh my god what is going on for here once but it's up to you is it possible that her hand might be misread in the card graphics or something because i have a shitty hand you do Yikes. No, I just thought he's, I'm, 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 this is a pure bluff catcher. With Jack High? But, but, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I, I... Okay, she's saying some words here, but they don't particularly make sense. This is a pure bluff catcher. All right, good on you. Uh, it's really cool that you have the balls in poker to, you know not believe someone when they bet into a pot, don't believe at people all the time, um, and you're going to catch their bluffs. But their bluffs are going to be bluffs on a 10-10-9-3 board with ace-king, ace-queen, ace-jack, king-queen, king-jack, queen-jack, you know, even all the way down to king-eight, king-seven, you know, 
what bluffs do you think they're doing um, with uh, five, six, five, eight, seven, eight, six, eight? How many of those are they bluffing with? They're, they're, they're not bluffing with those hands. They're bluffing with hands that beat you. And therefore, you don't have a bluff catcher because you're not catching any bluffs because your hand's not even good enough to catch a bluff. I think you have to be. We'll <laughs> <laughs> go to the river. The river is a nine. That one's you for sure. They're gonna run it twice. And she's got a small pair. You give me that much credit? I don't know. She's good with the first one. Let's turn him over. Okay, so here, unlike in tournament poker, in cash games poker, there's two differences first of all you don't have to flip your hands over when it's all in and call on the river um uh, you can keep your hands concealed which they have done so people on the table garrett and the rest of the players do not know that uh, robbie has jack high at this moment in time and then secondly you can choose to run it twice or more because uh, in big pots what that can do is it can even out variance and it means the results aren't um um really down to a handful of extremely large pots um where um a rather unlucky or uh, strange card might come in the river so there's going to be two different rivers here. The first one was in fact a 9, so the board went out 10, 10, 9, 9, 3, which means the 7, 8 is no good, and the jack high wins on that. And the second card is coming out now, and Garrett really needs a club, a 7, 8, 6, or jack to um, um, sort of win half of this part, otherwise, Robbie's going to win the whole thing with, again, with jack high. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> if the cards are correct. <laughs> and the river breaks out again. Oh my god. Oh my god. So the river is an ace of spades, and that means uh, no help from uh, Garrett on either of those two cards. He loses both runouts, um, and Robbie scoops the entire pot. They haven't flipped their cards over yet, and that's when the drama is really going to start here. I want to see. Does she have Jack Four? She had four Jack High. What? Whoa! Look at you. Whoa! That's look at Garrett's face. That is. That's some fucking poker right there. That was sick. Wow. That's strong. That was sick. Oh shit. That is super, super strange. You can see his reaction. Like what is what? Jacob, you look like you want to kill me. I'm not Jacob. Like, you look like you want to kill me, Jacob. He wants to vomit. So the cards have been flipped over now, and Garrett is just staring into space, looking around at every single player. He hasn't said anything, but he knows this is really really weird that was a really weird thing to do to call the turn for $140,000 with so little equity against his range of hands and this hand is kind of blown up a little bit it's turned into um, not just a discussion amongst poker players but also it's trenched out into the 
wider media and um, media organisations like the BBC and social media. And one of the interesting things I think I find is that it's turned as typical into kind of a whose team are you on and um, I'm offended because um, men can't handle that they've lost a poker hand to women. Let, let me be absolutely clear here. A, um, Garrett is looking around not because Robbie is a woman, not even because she's a novice, but because that is not a normal thing for any poker player to do, to call with Jack. You don't put Garrett on seven, eight in a range of hands. And even if you do, his range of hands, it might include seven, eight, but that's a very, very small combination of cards compared to all of the aces kings queens any 10 any nine any pocket pair uh um, it cannot justify calling a pot for nearly a quarter of a million more well, over a quarter of a million dollars in cash no matter the skill level or the sex of the person so anybody that is um sort of you know, outside of poker claiming men cannot handle that a woman has correctly called a bluff here. That's not the point of this story. The point of the story is how many times she is expected to win that hand with the range of hands that any player would have against her. And the answer is her equity must have been less than 5%, yet she's getting even money on the call. What the hell is going on here? I was not in the hand I want to warm it. <laughs> wow. This is... I'm speechless. I mean, I'm speechless. I mean, usually Garrett would be fairly congratulatory if somebody made a hero call like that, but he seems somewhat disturbed here by what just happened. I don't... Call of the year right there. It's literally like the sort of most disturbed look that I've ever seen Garrett give. And obviously the reason why he would be that is how, how can she call? Like maybe he thinks that she she saw his hand somehow or so, I, I don't know. The flop goes uh, bet call. The turn goes bet raise shove call. Oh, like what? What do you mean, like like wait? One twenty thousand mini race. No, before the flop. Before the flop. One twenty eight three. I think it was a. I don't know. I don't understand sort of what's happening right now. Andy. So Garrett, who is an experienced professional, fifteen twenty years behind him. Um, has um, uh, not handed over any chips at this moment in time. But what he has done is he's just gone through the hand, kind of in his head, staring into space, where he's kind of gone the, the, the turn went, bet, raise, all in, call. And he's going through that, like, how is it possible that this is actually happened what a ridiculous move but he kind of slowly comes to the realization of you know he's been well in his opinion he's been absolutely and completely cheated um the the way that adelson is thinking here is that there is just no way she could have 
called that bet on the turn whether she was a professional, an average, or a recreational, or even a novice player. I mean, we're probably down at the level of don't know the difference between a flush and a straight and a full house kind of player, but she's not that bad. She's sitting with the better part of $180,000 in cash on the table. So it makes absolutely no sense, um, but uh, he comes to the realisation he's got to actually pay her out here. Um, and that's what happens next. Mm-hmm. This is a new car, right? If my jack was in a club, I would have been out. What do you mean if your jack was in a club? Yeah. You know, you've let me do this to you several times now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's happening. I'm just right testing now. it. Yeah. And this doesn't seem super funny do to me. And honestly, I, no, like when you, be, when you bet that like high big yeah. stack, why are you going on it twice? I thought you were on ace high. Ace high. Uh huh. And then, so why call a jack high then? She thought he was on ace high? She thought he was on ace high. So you've got jack four. The flop is 10, 10, 9, 3. You've got jack four, you put me on ace high and I go all in. Are you going to call? If you're going to call and I've got ace high, your options are spiking a jack or spiking a four in the river. You have six cards out of uh, a possible uh, 50, 46 cards. So you've got six out of 46, one in seven and a half chance of spiking that. You're going to get about even money on your call. Right, so that's like a 14% EV bet. Why would you call with jack four off if you thought that I had ace high? That makes no sense. First of all, a little bit of a straight draw, but I have blockers on there. No, 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 on the turn though. So you called all in on the turn because... Yeah, because you don't have shit. That's right. Uh, Blockers are a little bit of a sort of advanced strategy term. Um, This is kind of a little bit like word soup. She's coming out with these terms of justifying her call, but they don't really make any sense. The only blocker that she's kind of talking about here is that she's got the jack of clubs. And so the jack of clubs would block part of a flush draw that Garrett has. Garrett actually did have the flush draw. um, But look, um, he's got two clubs. There are two clubs on the board. So there are nine clubs left in the deck. She's got one of the clubs, so there's got eight. So he's got eight clubs left in the deck. So instead of having a nine in forty-six chance of hitting a club, he's got an eight in forty-six chance of hitting a club. That kind of change in equity is completely meaningless, especially when dealing with essentially calling an all-in as a fifty-fifty flip. The blocker means nothing when looking at the bigger picture of exactly what she has to do what she has to call and the range of hands that she expects Garrett to be on. She thinks you can't be a jack high. It's not about what what I have. It's 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 about what I don't think you have when you play against me. That's it. You didn't think you had jack queen of clubs? 75. You let me do this to you post-stream too last time we played. Yeah. Keep letting me... 75. Right, so that's the clip. And then a strange thing happens um, after this clip where uh, they go out into the corridor after this hand and Robbie, who has just won £135,000 or dollars from Garrett, offers to give Garrett 
all of the money back. I do not know why. Why would you ever do that? If you win the money legitimately, why would you ever offer to give the money back? And Garrett accepts the offer. And subsequently, this is blown up because the question is, did Robbie cheat in this game? Not long ago, we had a live stream from a casino featuring a guy called Mike Possel. And Mike Possel was in cahoots with the people that ran the videoing and the live streaming. And um, there was some sort of information feedback where he was aware about the handholdings of other players in the game. Now, um, Robbie would have to have more information than that. Not only would she need to know what everyone else had, but she would need to know that, you know, if running it twice, what the next cards were to come. And so no one really knows if she was cheating, how she was cheating. But the way that this hand has transpired, especially to, to Garrett and quite a large number of poker professionals, is that like the only explanation is that she was either cheating or she's so poor she's underneath recreational level poker player. She's at the level of doesn't know the difference between a flush and a straight jaw. Certainly, by the way, Garrett Adelson, who sits down on poker tables with a million dollars in cash, um, shouldn't have accepted the money. There is going to be an ongoing investigation that may or may not come to some sort of conclusion about was she wearing some sort of device? Did she have some sort of knowledge? Um, uh, and it's very interesting to see the side of the fence that a lot of commentators are on. About 50% of people sit on the side of she is simply a really, really bad under-recreational player who made an extremely bad move and got lucky. And then you have about 50% of the community who are going, there is just no way in a million years even a recreational player could could make that mistake and commit that amount of money with Jack High on the turn. She must have been cheating. Um, the fact that she gave the money back as well afterwards is seriously damaging. There is some sort of argument that she felt like... Um, she was intimidated. She came back to the table and she said, you know, I gave him the money back because I didn't want him to leave. Look, you're the fish. He's the pro. You want the guy to leave. You know, bringing Garrett back as if he's some sort of player that you're going to take advantage of. I wouldn't be playing against him if I was sat on that table. Um, that That's more word soup from the lady. And certainly what this isn't is this is not a women versus men scenario and um, we had exactly the same questions arise after the Mike Possle event although that was a number of hands the, uh, and I'll give her credit the strange thing about this is this just happens to be one hand and not only one hand if she was going to choose to cheat in any hand why choose this hand which would be a so super obvious and b she had only 40% equity when running it twice anyway I mean none of that make pretty much nothing makes sense it doesn't make sense if she cheated right from the from the moment the hand that she chose to cheat how she cheated the guy that she chose just none of that makes sense and it doesn't make sense if she didn't cheat because how was she playing the hand that poorly for that amount of money in that game nothing makes sense in this entire hand and that's why i absolutely love it if you've got any time on your hands uh joey ingram chicago joey put together Four days worth of 12-hour investigations where he sits and eats 
some sort of edible, some sort of mind-enhancing edible, and goes through all the evidence and all the information, and even then, he hasn't come to a she cheated or she didn't cheat after all of that. The whole thing is fascinating. Absolutely incredible scenes going over in America at the Hustler Casino. Get me in that game. Right, okay, that was me 12 days ago, discussing the hand. Since then, a few things have happened. Two things mainly. First of all, as I sort of mentioned on there, it did very much turn into uh, misogynist men can't stand that women can be empowering and beat them at the poker table. And that, in the mainstream narrative, which grew and grew and grew, became the number one sort of storyline. But also, some more happened sort of behind the scenes. Well, so Hustler Casino released this statement that was out of nowhere that said something like, information has come... Uh, to us that one of our staff members, Brian, Brian Sabuskulero, stole three chips, $5,000 chips, off Robbie Stack uh, at the end of the at the end of the stream. I mean, what? And so he's been fired and as it transpires, he has sort of got access to cameras and could feed back information but not only that um uh, he sent an apology to robbie and i'm not gonna read the whole thing but it is kind of sickeningly weird um uh one of the things he said is someone who was so kind to me to give back the money Sorry, someone who was so kind to give back the money to the crybaby Garrett and kind enough to spare me wouldn't not be as nice as you are. Wouldn't not be as nice as you are. That's what he said to Robbie and she posted this message. So he was sickeningly apologetic, said how great she was and how much she believed him and said wouldn't not be as nice as you are. In a separate tweet, Robbie Jade Lou said, I had the detective on the phone and told him I wouldn't not be pressing charges right there and then. I wouldn't not be pressing charges right there and then. Exactly the same grammatical mistake. The fact that she uses three full stops and then a space and then a comma in a lot of her writing as does this Brian guy, it would very much appear that the same person wrote both of those texts. On top of that, a lot of information has come along about this guy, Kip, who was at the table, who was hand-signalling Robbie and has a completely shady past, as does she, and they were all playing $100, $200, $300 buy-in tournaments just a few months ago, and now all of a sudden she's at a position where $135,000 has just been gifted back to Garrett because it means nothing to her. Basically, she's guilty as sin, and a full-scale investigation has been launched. It's going to end up under uncovering that she completely 
she completely cheated, which is then going to make it very interesting for the wokey cokies out there, the virtue signals. Um, underneath the Hustler Live casino, if you look at the quote replies, I mean, it's just who can be the most offended, but without even understanding the concept of exactly what has gone down. It's like, it's it's impossible to most people that the single woman on the table could possibly have cheated, which she did. She's stolen $135,000 off Garrett, even though she gave it back to him. But how much more money have they sold? Just some of the tweets, I stole some of the tweets underneath that. Mike Sierra. A lot of the worst, by the way, they're not women having a go at men for being misogynistic. It's men having a go at men for being misogynistic. The worst kind of man, the feminist man, who in all honesty is the guy that's fooling nobody, you know? Of all the men to keep your daughter away from, the feminist man is the number one man that you want to keep your daughter away from because he's the sneaky inside predator. He's the wolf in sheep's clothing, the feminist man, right? Mike Sierra says, um, this is the perfect gift for everybody in the comments. Didn't know there were rules on when to call or fold. And he's got a picture, I think, of Pharrell Williams. And it just says, you mad. And that just shows his complete and utter ignorance that he doesn't know that there are rules when to call and fold. He doesn't actually have the intelligence to understand why the construct of this hand doesn't make any sense. And then Nicole, Nicole Chanel, says, dude is literally having an existential crisis because a woman read his ass, called his bluff, did a gamble in poker and won. And there's a little violin emoji. And when all of this gets unraveled, she'll realise that she is being sympathetic towards a criminal, a thief. But the thing is... There will be no winners in this story because even then, all she's going to see is a woman still being a victim because she was the single woman in a table full of men, even though she was the one that stole $135,000 plus any more from the table. Whatever it is that you're doing this week, please make sure you don't steal $135,000 off the table and do any of the illegal cheating. Uh, this is Tom signing. Off. <laughs>